Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that we would see your will, see your plans for us, and that your Holy Spirit would teach us what corrections we might need to make in our lives in order to live out the truths that we find in this passage. Forgive us, O God, for apathy. Forgive us for complacency and for compromising on your word. Lord, we all recognize that to some degree, every one of us has done that. And yet we long to be faithful to you. So teach us, guide us, and renew us today for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, the subject that we are going to be discussing today is perhaps the most timely one we could possibly address. Uh, Over the course of the past two weeks, I've had a lot of time to think, believe it or not, um, about what I would be preaching today. And I knew what I would be preaching today, but it was a matter of how to say it. And I've given a lot of consideration to the fact that this message today might be the most important and controversial message that I have ever preached. Within the next five years, Scratch that, within the next two years, none of us would be surprised if it happened within one year. It's entirely possible that I would be jailed for preaching a message like I'm going to preach today. Today's message will be from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. We'll be continuing in our study of Genesis, and this message is called The Theocentric Marriage. The Theocentric Marriage. Theocentric means God-centered. Theo means God. Centric means centered. So theocentric. Say it with me so I know you got it. Theocentric. Okay, theocentric. God-centered. Now, people wonder why I care so much about marriage, because that is one of those things that I do voice my view on quite often. It's because marriage is designed to be theocentric. I think we all know that the family institution in America is under attack in our day and age. Approximately 50% of, uh, of marriages in America will end in divorce. Tragically, and I mean that in the most extreme sense of the word, Tragically, the rate of divorce is roughly the same for those who identify as Christians. What that means is that there is a divorce every 13 seconds, which which means that there's been about 10 divorces since I came up here. What that adds up to is 6,646 divorces per day, 46,523 divorces per week. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, 60% of marriages for couples between the ages of 20 and 25 will end in divorce. Now to see the compounding effect, it's not just the people that divorce that it has an effect on. To see the compounding effect that divorce has, one study showed that if the parents of both spouses have divorced, the odds of that couple divorcing will nearly triple. On a practical level, this means that more than half of all American children will witness the breakup of a parent's marriage. And of these children, close to half will also see the divorce, the second divorce of their parents. And the divorce rate is only one of several ways that the family institution is being attacked in our day and age. The family institution, which of course includes the institution of marriage by definition, is under attack in our day and age in a way that is unprecedented in American history. We've never seen an onslaught on the family like we see in our day and age. So I am begging you to pay close attention today because it's very important that each of us develop a biblical understanding of this issue and that you be able to understand how to respond biblically to the culture on this issue. The culture is begging us, they're screaming at us with questions like, why should Christians even care who marries who? 
If two consenting adults want to get married, who, who are we to say anything? Who are we to, to impede on that? Why should we care about the definition of marriage? And friends, we have to have answers to questions like these. We have to hold the line on this issue. And we must understand why it matters. We have to realize, first of all, that even if the whole human race decides to change the definition of marriage, God does not. God doesn't change the definition of marriage. His word never fails. It never changes because God himself never changes. And we'll see today that his word gives us two very, very important reasons for us to be concerned about the way that our culture is attacking marriage, attempting to redefine marriage. There are two reasons that marriage matters. Number one, we'll see that God designed marriage as a means of making his creation perfect. And secondly, we'll see that marriage is glorious, Marriage is glorious, and the reason that it's glorious is because the God who created it, the God who institutionalized it, the God who designed and defined it, created it to be a symbol of the gospel. And the gospel is glorious. Here's the first principle. Easy to remember. The designer of marriage is the definer of marriage. The designer of marriage is the definer of marriage. Anything that doesn't fit God's definition for marriage is not marriage. It's a counterfeit. We've seen that on the sixth day, God created man. As with everything else in creation, God gave man a very specific purpose. Number one, to bear the image of God. To bear the image of God, to have dominion over the earth is number two, and to multiply and fill the earth. And we saw that God placed Adam in the garden, in Eden, instructing him to work and keep the land, terms which are used in reference to worship throughout the Old Testament. Work and keep are worship terms throughout the Old Testament. And the implication of that, as we learned in our last lesson, what, three weeks ago, is that all of life, all of life is intended to be an act of worship unto God. It was designed, our whole lives were designed to be theocentric, God-centered. We saw that man's ability to fulfill that purpose was lost in the fall, but it was restored for all who are in Christ. And now for those who are in Christ, your life is intended to be theocentric, and by God's grace, it can be. If you have your Bibles open, to Genesis chapter 2. We'll now continue looking at the God-breathed, inerrant, infallible Word of God in the second chapter of Genesis, starting in verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Throughout chapter 1, what we saw is God is saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. All the way down at the end, he says it's very good. But remember, we're not all the way at the end now. We're looking at day 6 still. This is the first time that we've seen God declare that something was not good. And why wasn't it good? It wasn't good because it wasn't complete. Man was alone. Adam had no companion, and God declared that for him to have no companion, for him to be alone, was not good. Now we've seen throughout this study that things are good when they operate in accordance with the purpose and the function for which God created them, in the context that God created them to be. Adam is not able to fulfill an aspect of the purpose for which he was created. Now what aspect would that be? God commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, back in chapter 1, verse 28. And he could not do that by himself. He could not not do that without a companion. He's alone, and so he's unable to fulfill what God has planned for him. And because he could not fulfill this purpose, it was not good yet. 
And so God's solution is to make him a helper. And it's not so much that men need help, although, guys, let's be honest. Yeah, there's not much question about that, right? It's not so much that men need help, but Adam needed a companion. And the Hebrew word that gets translated as helper here is not derogatory. So women, if you take it that way, you're misunderstanding it. Men, if you're reading it that way, be warned. That's not derogatory at all. It's not saying that a woman is lesser than. It's not just another word for slave or servant or maid. No, this word is actually most commonly ascribed to God himself to God himself. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 29 says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. Psalm 33 20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 124 8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 146 5 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as what? A helper. He said, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send you a helper. So you get the point. If anything, this term, helper, is to be highly esteemed. It's to be highly esteemed. This is not just any helper. God says that this helper would be someone fit for man. The idea is that by adding a helper to the picture, God's creation will be good. In fact, he'll say it's very good. Why? Because man will be able to function as God intended for him to function. Think about the implications of that for just a second. Adam is in the garden It's beautiful. He's walking in, in perfect, peaceful fellowship with God. He is sinless, and he has all that he needs to sustain his existence. And yet God declares that it is not enough. It is not enough. It's not good. And so what is God's response to this void in his creation and in Adam's life? Well, he declares his intention to make a helper, but that's not what he immediately does. It's not what he immediately does. Instead, we read this in the following couple verses, verses 19 and 20 of Genesis chapter 2. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So God's response is to bring all the animals before Adam to see what he would name them. Now, don't get this wrong. This is not saying that God didn't know what Adam was going to name them. He knew what God was going, or what Adam was going to name them. Instead, this is to say that God is giving Adam the opportunity to exercise the dominion over the animals that God had designed him to have. He had granted that to Adam. Let's remember that in ancient culture, to name something was to have dominion over that thing, to have authority over that thing. And apparently, God brings the animals to Adam in pairs, something that'll be kind of significant once we get to the flood in chapter 6. So while Adam is giving names to the animals, what else is he doing? He's doing something else. He's noticing that each of these animals has a complementary function. That is, there are male animals and there are female animals. And while he's naming the animals, he's also, apparently, looking for a helper who would be suitable for him, who would be fit for him. And there is no helper suitable for him to be found. Adam realizes for himself that unlike the animals, he has no corresponding companion. And once he realizes that he has a need for companionship, God starts working out his plans. So we continue reading in verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. 
And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And while he's asleep, God removes a rib from Adam and uses it to create a woman. And this is the helper who is suitable for man. God didn't bring the man an animal. There were plenty of animals, but he did not bring him an animal. He didn't bring the man another man. He brought the man a woman. Only a woman was capable of giving the man the ability to do what God had sovereignly intended for the man to do. He was to be a partner with this woman, thereby being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Now, there is a deeply, deeply flawed view in our culture today that there is no essential distinction between genders, that men and women are not only equal in nature, that is human nature, but also in terms of functionality. Our culture will say that there are more than two genders. That is a lie. That is a lie. How many genders are mentioned here? Two. There are two genders. Gender is ordained by God. And gender is a sacred aspect of our identity and our existence. Men and women are one in nature, but they differ in function. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 8, that man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, in no way, shape, or form does that mean or imply in any way that man is superior to woman. Paul's simply telling us the order of creation that God ordained. And that might make you feel uncomfortable, that man wasn't created for woman, but woman was created for man. That might make you feel uncomfortable because it's extremely countercultural. But if you don't like it, I'd say, take it up with God. Take it up with God. But whatever you do, don't be tempted to measure God's goodness by your own yardstick. This is God's design. This is God's design. This was the means by which God took an aspect of man's existence which was not good, and he made it good. This is the unsearchable, sovereign wisdom of God put into action as a means of blessing the man and enabling him to fulfill one of the purposes for which he was created. Now this is kind of cool. The chapter ends with a love song and with a sovereign decree from God. We read in verses 23 to 25. And as you look at those verses, you probably see that it's broken up. It's a song. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God created marriage. God is the one who created marriage. He designed it. He defined it. He decreed it with his sovereign word. Marriage was intended to be a lifelong, monogamous, covenantal union between a biological man and a biological woman, a biological male and a biological female. Any attempt to redefine it, any attempt to expand the definition or change the definition of marriage is a rebellion against the designer and definer of it. Isn't it beautiful to see, though, that Adam's first words, these are the first words that are, that are ascribed to him, are a love song for his wife, his companion, his perfect and suitable helper. You get the impression of a sense of relief that he felt. He was overjoyed to have a suitable helper and companion. I wouldn't be surprised if he would have busted out with a James Brown song or something, you know, if he had known the song. 
He's ecstatic to have this woman as a companion. God designed men and women to need one another. The Bible only acknowledges two genders, male and female. And this is important because gender is sacred. It is ordained by God. God is the one who decided how to design things, and he designed it with two genders. He designed humanity with two genders. And many in our days will say that gender is a social construct. A social construct is something invented by society, invented by society. As if we're all biologically ambiguous. But gender was not invented by man. It is not a social construct. Nothing could be further from the truth. Gender is decreed by God, not by society, not by the culture, not by the world. It is decreed by God alone. It's not decided by the individual. It is determined by God and God alone. Now, verse 24 is very important. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his, his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Why do I say that it's important? Because it's quoted in the New Testament. In fact, it's quoted two times. It's quoted by Jesus and by Paul. In fact, Jesus is quoted in both Matthew and Mark as having said these words, quoted or referred to this verse. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to see how Jesus used this, this verse, how he referred to it, how he responded when he was asked a very important question about the issue of marriage and divorce. Starting in verse 3, we read, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, by the way, they knew the answer to this question. They knew the answer. They're trying to trap Jesus. Make no mistake, the Pharisees are not a picture of godly people. They're a picture of religious people, but they are apostate. They're a picture of humanity's rebellion against God. It's a picture of who we would be apart from God's grace. And isn't this human nature? What they're doing here, isn't that human nature? We see kids do this. Testing the limits, trying to see how far they can go with their understanding. And so the Pharisees ask if there's any reason at all in which divorce is permissible under the law. We continue reading in verses 4 to 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There it is. There's that quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And what we see here is that Jesus affirms God's design for marriage as it was revealed, as it is revealed in Genesis chapter 2. It is a lifelong, monogamous, covenantal union between one biological man and one biological woman. Any deviation from this, by definition, is not marriage. But the Pharisees, they came to trap Jesus. They came to make him look like a fool, and so they pressed the issue with him. Verses 7 to 9 they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Moses, why did he create this Exception for divorce, that's the question. That's what the Pharisees want to know. And notice that they are only asking about Moses' intent. They're not asking about God's intent, but Jesus goes to the intent of God. And the answer is that God did not design marriage to, to be separated. 
God did not want there to be a divorce, but he granted an exception. Why? Because of the hard-heartedness of the people. And what was that exception? Sexual immorality. It's interesting to note that the Greek word that gets translated as sexual morality, immorality here, is porneia. Porneia. What English word do you think we get from that? We get the word that is given to one of the greatest, if not the greatest, and most direct assault on the family institution today. And so you might ask, well, what is sexual, sexual immorality? I mean, it's kind of a, a general, vague term. I'll give you a definition. Sexual immorality is any type of sexual conduct, either in the heart or played out, that is outside of God's design for sexuality. Sexual immorality is any type of sexual conduct or activity outside of God's design for sexuality. And God's designed, God's design for sexuality is in the context of marriage. And marriage is a lifelong covenantal union between one biological male and one biological female. Period. End of story. Any sexual expression or experience outside of that context is contrary to God's design for sexuality. It is outside of God's will. It is sinful. It defies God's sovereign design for his creation. In previous generations, some have believed, maybe foolishly, that we shouldn't talk about sex in church. We shouldn't talk about sexuality in church. And some would even say that today. Friends, there is a fine line between foolishness and stupidity, and this position straddles the line. That statement straddles the line. The fact is that the Bible addresses it. The Bible has quite a bit to say about sexuality. And if the Bible addresses it, the church must address it. We don't get to just cherry pick what we talk about. That's why I like going verse by verse, because I don't get to cherry pick. I got to wrestle with stuff. I got to deal with stuff that maybe I'm uncomfortable with. Our passage today clearly teaches that God designed sexuality to be experienced only in the context of marriage. Do you know what the number one reason is for kids and single people to practice abstinence? You might say it's because, well, you know, you don't want them to compare anybody to their spouse someday or whatever. No, the number one reason to practice abstinence is because God tells you to. God tells you to. Obedience unto God. That's it. That is the reason. And of course, there are other good reasons, but if this isn't the top reason, then all we're talking about here is behavior modification and morality, you know, a moral type of living. God created marriage. He designed it, and only he has the right to define it. No king, no judge, no president has the right to defy God's design for marriage or sexuality. The first thing that we see in our passage in Genesis is that God designed marriage as a means of blessing man, enabling him to be fruitful and multiply, thereby making his creation perfect, falling into line with what his purpose is for marriage and sexuality were and are. The second reason that God gave us marriage is seen when Paul refers to this same verse, verse 24. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul covers this in a passage that is sort of controversial in our day and age because it talks about things that are Countercultural. It instructs us to do things that are countercultural. Starting in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now the church, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's that reference again. And he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see that? By God's sovereign, authoritative decree, the submission of the wife to the husband is designed to be a living illustration. It's a picture of something. It's a picture of the submission of the church to Christ. And the love of the husband for his wife is also designed for something. It's designed to be a living illustration of the love that Christ has for the church. The theocentric marriage, that is marriage as God designed it and God defined it, is a very, very good thing. In fact, in light of what Paul tells us here, I would say that marriage is a glorious, glorious institution because it's a picture of the gospel. And the gospel is glorious. The reason that marriage is good is because God has ordained marriage. The reason that it's glorious is because the God who created it, who institutionalized it, designed it, and defined it, has created it, created it to be a living illustration, a parable, a living parable of the gospel. Marriage is wonderful and marriage is sacred because what it points to, the gospel, is wonderful and glorious and sacred. And so just like you can't mess with the gospel without destroying it, you can't mess with marriage without destroying it. Understand that. Marriage is intended to display the glory of Christ as revealed in the gospel. And that, friends, that is why Christians must stand against the culture's redefinition of marriage. Look what Paul says, starting in verse 25. He says, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And so to obey his instructions here is to love yourself because man is united into one flesh with his wife just as the church is united with Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's talking about those who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you have been regenerated. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. He continues saying, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, For if we have been united with him, and the implication there is that we have been. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, as a husband, if I'm tempted to ask, why should I be obedient to this? Why should I fulfill this role? Paul would say, that is as ridiculous as asking why Christ should love and be united to the church. Why should a wife submit to her husband and fulfill her role? Paul would say, that's as ridiculous as asking why the church should submit and be unified to Christ. The basis of these roles is the work and relationship of Christ for and to the church. 
the basis of these roles is the work and relationship of Christ to and for the church. Christ. Christ is the Savior of the church because she is united to him. And the reason that God hates divorce is because it destroys the living picture of the gospel that marriage is supposed to reflect. Instead of a picture of everlasting, monogamous, covenantal union and love, when a wife leaves her husband, divorce is a living picture of apostasy, of the church falling away from Jesus. A man letting go of his bride and divorcing his bride is a picture of Christ letting go of his sheep. Sexual immorality is a picture of adultery, of unfaithfulness, either the church being unfaithful to God or God being unfaithful to the church. A union or marriage, to use the term uh, lightly and loosely in this context, a marriage between two men gives a picture of Christ loving himself and dying only for himself, leaving the church without a savior. And a marriage or union between two women gives a picture of a church that refuses to submit to Christ and submits only to itself. And so the reason, friends, the reason I care and and you should care about marriage is because we care about the gospel. We care about the gospel. Given that marriage is designed to be an illustration of the gospel, The gospel that saved us, that redeemed us, that brought us peace with God. Given that marriage is designed to be an illustration of the gospel, here's the bottom line, friends. Experiencing sexual intimacy in a context that is contrary to God's design for it is actually an assault on the gospel. Let me say that again. Experiencing sexual intimacy in a context that is contrary to God's design for it, is actually an assault on the gospel. And since this is such a a relevant issue, since the, the institution of marriage is under fire in our culture right now as never before, let me quickly address some objections that people have to the biblical definition of marriage because I really do want you guys to understand this. And you're going to hear objections because the culture has all kinds of objections. Some would say it's unloving for Christians to judge someone who wants to love whomever they wish. It's unloving. First of all, Christians don't judge the person. We don't judge the person. We don't have the right to judge the person. Only God judges the person. We judge the actions of a person. And we are actually instructed to do so by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, which, oh, by the way, is the same passage, the same chapter where Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. So Jesus tells them to judge not, and then he tells them to judge. So what's the, how do you reconcile that? It's because when he says, judge not lest ye be judged, he's saying, don't judge hypocritically. If you read the end of that little story of the man with the plank in his eye, at the end of that story, he takes the plank out of his eye and he goes and he helps his brother. So we're instructed by Jesus to judge the actions of people. And when he says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know a tree by its fruit. How will we know a tree by its fruit? By judging fruit. By measuring it against the word of God. Further, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6 makes it perfectly clear that endorsing something that God condemns is not loving. Endorsing something that God condemns clearly is not loving. It would be unloving for us to say nothing. Worse than that, it would be the very opposite of love to endorse something that God condemns. In fact, it is not love, it is hatred to do that. Another objection that you might hear, man, this one kind of takes the cake in terms of bad arguments. Jesus never condemned homosexuality or homosexual marriage, so he must have approved it. And that is an argument from silence. 
if I've ever heard one. We don't know that he never spoke about it. We don't know that he never addressed it. We have only a very small portion of the dialogue that he spoke. We also have no dialogue in which he condemns rape. We also have no dialogue in which he condemns child abuse. So you might say, well, those things are morally despicable. Exactly. In other words, this is a morally despicable argument from silence. The truth is that Jesus affirmed all that is recorded in Scripture. And Scripture clearly condemns homosexuality in numerous other texts. The words of Jesus are not more authoritative than any other part of Scripture. They are all equally authoritative because all the words of Scripture are His. All the words of Scripture are inspired by God, breathed by God. You might say, well, your Bible's old. Times have changed. Don't you know that moral standards and ethics evolve? The response to that, our desires may change. The culture's affections may change. But God doesn't. And God determines what is moral or immoral, not humanity. God doesn't change, and thus his definition of and design for marriage does not change. And further, the New Testament passages which condemn homosexuality and sexual immorality also condemn things like theft and greed and lying and cheating. Are we to think that we can just arbitrarily pick and choose which ones we're going to throw out? Because why don't we throw those out too? Friends, marriage is a lifelong monogamous covenantal union between a biological man and a biological woman. The first purpose is to give us a context in which we may enjoy the blessing of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And the second purpose is just as important. It's to model the selfless love that Christ has for his people and the love of his people for their Savior. God designed marriage. God designed human sexuality. And thus only he has the sovereign right to define their respective parameters. The word of God Friends, the Word of God reveals the will of God. It reveals what we should be and what we can be by the grace of God. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a design for marriage. It is the foundation of society that He ordained. We must affirm nothing contrary to or outside of the definition that He has given to His design. The Bible is so abundantly clear on this issue. No one can say that the Bible has little to nothing to say about God's blueprint design for marriage. Nobody has the authority to revise or redefine God's word. And to reject his word, to reject his will, is to invite very serious consequences. Because to embrace God's definition of marriage is to embrace God's will, but at the same time to reject His definition is to reject his will. And to reject his will is to reject God himself. So where does all this fit in with the book of Genesis? How how is this relevant to the book of Genesis? Why is this important? It's because one of the things that we're going to see as we go through the book of Genesis is the rapid disintegration of the foundation of society which is the family. We'll see husbands and wives go toe-to-toe. We'll see husbands and wives betraying one another, at odds with one another, plotting against one another. We'll see entire cities that come under God's judgment for rejecting God's design for sexuality. And of course, what's at the root of this disintegration of the family unit? Sin. Sin. And we're going to see that sin has a profound effect on the family unit. The good news of the gospel, though, is that forgiveness is available to all who will 
Repent and believe in Christ. Place saving faith in Christ. Whether it's sexual immorality or something else, we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet we can be forgiven. We can be forgiven. We've all made mistakes. We've all sinned. And God will forgive us. We all rely on God's grace every second of every day. God is patient with us and commands us to repent, to turn away from our sin, not to just keep doing it, but to turn away from it, to look to Christ who bore the sins of all who would place saving faith in him, to repent and believe in Christ, knowing that all true belief is a repenting belief and all true repentance is a believing repentance. This is where we experience forgiveness. This is how we experience forgiveness, by repenting and believing in Christ. And one more thing, confess. Confess your sin. To confess means to bring our understanding of sin into alignment with God's definition of sin. It means to agree with what he says in his word. Repent, believe, and confess. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he, talking about Christ, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, we must not endorse non-biblical views of marriage and sexuality. And sometimes that is very hard because we're talking about real people who have real emotions. And so we need to address, we need to know where we stand and we need to be able to address it with grace. We need to address it with grace, understanding that were it not for God's grace, we'd be off doing whatever too. To endorse non-biblical views of marriage or sexuality is not compassionate. It's hateful. If you're single, and whether or not you have the desire to marry or not, the Word of God instructs you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to remain undivided in your devotion unto the Lord. If you're married, here's a question for you. Does your marriage reflect the relationship that Christ has to the church? as God intended. Is your marriage theocentric? Whether you're single or married, brothers and sisters, your entire life is designed and intended to be theocentric, God-centered. Your top priority in life, apart from walking with the Lord, is your marriage. Is your marriage. That is number two. Before your job, even before your kids, your marriage is number two. God is number one. So since your marriage is part of your life, whether that's present or future, it must be, just like everything else in your life, theocentric, God-centered. So husbands and wives, love and submit to one another. Your marriage is designed to be a picture of the gospel. Keep that in mind when you're tempted to look lustfully at someone other than your spouse. Keep that in mind the next time you're tempted to raise your voice at your spouse. Keep that in mind the next time you get under one another's skin. Don't tell me it never happens. I've been married 21 years almost. I know it happens. Keep it in mind if, God forbid, you are ever, ever tempted to divorce. Present your lives, present every aspect of your lives, including your marriages, as living sacrifices unto God. Because the God who can give life to those who are dead in their sin, who has the power to raise the dead from the grave, can bring life and joy into your marriage. They say that a good picture of the theocentric marriage, of a God-centered marriage, is kind of like a triangle. The sides of a triangle, if you, if you picture that you're on this side and your spouse is on the other side, and God's on top, as you get closer to God, you get closer to one another. That is a theocentric marriage. So by God's design, let us live that out.
By God's abundant grace, may our marriages reflect the glory of the gospel in submission to one another, in loving faithfulness to one another, and in faithful obedience unto God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come before you, we confess that we have sinned in numerous ways and that only your word has the authority to tell us what to think or what to believe about sin. So we pray, Lord, that as we look at our marriages, look at our desires, we pray that by your grace, through your spirit, you would give us the strength, the wisdom, and the conviction to offer all of life unto you as, a, as an offering, as a living sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to be theocentric. Help us to be centered on you. Help us, Lord, when we are tempted to look to your son. Help us to repent. Help us to believe more. And forgive us when we fail. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ who made us right with you by your grace. May our lives reflect your goodness and your righteousness and your holiness, knowing that your glory is at stake and the glory of Christ matters. It's in his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.